Good evening, everyone. My name is Judy Cooper, and I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this Pride Week program on sexual orientation and gender identity. Tonight's program is co-sponsored by GLCCB and the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, Keith Murky from the commission is here. Keith, do you want to just stand up and um, just say a few words? Sure. Hi. Great, and we thank you for your support, Keith, and thanks for being here. Um, tonight we're celebrating the publication of an important new book, The Human Agenda, by Joe Wenke. Um, it's an honor and privilege to welcome Joe here to the Pratt Library and to Baltimore tonight. Joe is a writer, social critic, and LGBT rights activist. He's the founder and publisher of TransUber. I don't think that has anything to do with the ride-sharing service, right? Um, it's, a, <laughs> it's a publishing company with a focus on promoting LBGT rights, free thought, and equality for all people. He's also the author of numerous publications, the novel, the talk show, the poetry collection, Free Air, and Papal Bull, an ex-Catholic calls out the Catholic Church, among other, all of his publications. Tonight, Joe is going to discuss his book with two of the contributors to the conversations that are included in the book, um, the hip-hop artist, Why Love? You want to raise your hand? And uh, fashion model, Giselle Alisea. And also on the panel will be um, two local folks, Keith Tyrion, who is Director of Advocacy and Programs for Equality Maryland, and Saida Agostini from the Free State Legal Project, um, and we're glad that all of you, that you could be here to give a local perspective uh, on this topic. So please join me in welcoming Joe and uh, the other panelists to the stage. Well, thanks so much, everybody. Um, I just want to speak on behalf of my colleagues up here. We really appreciate you taking, <laughs> bless you. I left out the God part of that. But anyway, uh, we really appreciate your taking your precious time to spend a little bit of it with us. And I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to kind of set this up so you understand the context of what we're trying to, to do here. As Judy mentioned, I, I put together a book called The Human Agenda, Conversations About Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. I had wanted to do a book for some time on sexual orientation and gender identity, and I, we all know we're making progress. We have so much further to go. But I, I, you know, I didn't want to do an essays book. I didn't sort of want to do a, a debate-oriented book. I was thinking, is there an approach to these topics and issues that would have the best chance, maybe, of finding common ground in our shared humanity, 
And I thought maybe the simplest approach would be the best. How about if I just have conversations with amazing people in the community uh, from across the country? Some people that you may have heard of, some people that you may not know, uh, but each, you know, just unique and amazing human beings telling stories about their lives and, you know, sharing their experiences that maybe that would be a way of reaching people who have open minds and hearts, but maybe need to be educated. So that's, that's what I did. And so what we're sort of doing here is kind of bringing that concept to life. And so we've done several of these uh, conversations around the country. And you know what I'm hoping is that everybody here will join in. We're sitting up here with this table on a stage, but we're all here together. And we would love for you at whatever point, you know, uh, in the spirit of, you know, the, the Quaker religion, when the spirit moves you, just get up and say what you have to say. What we've sort of done before is we, we spend maybe 20 to 30 minutes kind of setting up the parameters and the terms of the conversation and then invite everybody to sort of join in. Uh, one other little footnote, um, the title The Human Agenda came to mind when I was doing a piece for the Huffington Post about a year and a half ago about the persistence of the hate speech phrase, the homosexual agenda, uh, which uh, you still see and hear just about every day if you're a, a fan of right wing watch as, as I am, and you like to flagellate yourself by listening to uh, the religious right crazies on their uh, radio broadcasts, which by the way, I'm, I'm attempting through my agent to invade. You never hear anybody with a different point of view. Uh, but we're gonna start badgering all of these uh, people like the Brian Fishers of the world and see if I can go on there so that they can you know, use me for target practice, but I'm, I'm quite prepared. But in any event, it just became apparent to me that there's no such thing as the homosexual agenda. Uh, there's no vast conspiracy to undermine you know, the so-called values of, of, of America. Nobody's that organized, right? We're just going about living our lives. But you know, beyond that, it just seemed to me, you know, there's really only the human agenda. And you know, it's life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, fill in the blank. We're all just living our lives. We all just want to be free. We all just want to be happy. So I started tweeting, you know, the homosexual agenda is human agenda, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. The transgender agenda is human agenda, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So then I thought, wait, that's the name of the book. So that's kind of the spirit, too, of what we're doing. I mean, how controversial is that message? We're all human beings. And that's what this is really about. So with no further ado, I thought a great way of getting started, given you know, this is Pride Week and given the Supreme uh, Court uh, decision, you know, establishing that there is indeed a constitutional right that reflects the human right for everybody to marry whoever they love, regardless of gender, uh, to take this moment here and try to assess where we stand. Because you know, we can all celebrate that landmark achievement but there are so many, so many serious issues. And for many people, these issues are a matter of life and death. They're a matter of survival. And legislation is so important. Uh, but we have our daily lives to lead, and we're up against all kinds of challenges. So I wanted to start, and I have my own thoughts on this, of course, by just asking my colleagues here on the panel where you think we're really at right now, at this moment in time, in terms of the struggle for our community with equality, with justice, and, and with respect. And uh, I think I'll start with my friend here, who I, who I love, and your thoughts, sir. 
guess I'll take the microphone. Um, everybody, we've all sat and everyone's got their wedding bells ringing and everybody's calling all the caterers and everybody's booking the banquet halls, talking about marriage equality and the landmark ruling. Um, but let's not forget that, you know, after the wedding, you still have to be able to put a roof over your head. There's still a problem with workplace discrimination. Transgender people are reporting double-digit um, you know, percentages of uh, reporting of discrimination. We're still dealing with teen suicides. We're still dealing with a crazy homicide rate uh, victimizing trans women, especially trans women of color. Um, while the wedding bells were only wedding bells were only part of the, you know, a part of what we need to achieve. I'd like to see an increase in the amount of weddings and a decrease in the number of funerals. Yeah, yeah there have actually been nine murders of trans women this year in the U.S., and uh, most of them women of color. Hi, um, my name is Saida Gassini, and I'm the director of LGBTQ resources for Free State Legal Project. Um... So I would say um, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, the last lines from the Lucille Clifton poem, Won't You Come Celebrate With Me. Um, She says, won't you come celebrate with me? Every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And um, we know the reality is, is that for LGBTQ people, um, especially LGBTQ people of color, um, for those of us who are undocumented, uh, for those of us who identify as transgender, gender nonconforming, um, for those of us who are homeless or in care, um, in foster care, or in um, criminalized in some way, we know the reality is, is that um, something has tried to kill us every day and has not failed. Um, so for me today, as I'm sitting at this table, I love weddings. You know, I love a good dress. You know, I love a good cake. I want to get married someday. Those things are fabulous. Um, But what I want to know and what I want to have faith in is that love will not leave anybody behind. I don't think love can exist that does leave anybody behind. Um, And I think that's what we really need to kind of engage with as a community. And um, for me, as a queer cis woman, I know that my privilege, it means that I have to fight to make sure that no person is left behind. And I can't believe I just quoted George W. Bush, but there you go. Okay, well, as far as where we are now, a lot of people ask me these questions. especially because of the Caitlyn Jenner cover of the Vanity Fair issue that came out. Um, There is progress in the fashion world, but the fashion world is not the entire world. It is a very small percentage of the world. And yes, we're making progress in getting the public aware of what even transsexuals are because some people don't even believe that transsexuals exist and they don't accept the fact that we exist based on religious beliefs. Um, So my motive or my reason for wanting to go public about all of this, uh, because I'm a very private person, but I feel like being private is not going to help the community. And being closeted, it, it doesn't help anybody. So I feel that coming out and doing part of these 
uh, lectures and going into the, this panel discussions and being part of this book can help somebody like me that is struggling or you know is suicidal and telling them that you know what if you have support and you have friends and you have people that believe in you you can make it you can be successful regardless if you're marginalized you know it's not only trans people that are going through uh, through this I mean African Americans have been going through every uh, through situations in this country f since the beginning of time so it's all about like what he says and this book says it's the human agenda we all deserve the right to be respected and we all have the right to be equal we should all have the right to be equal and just like a, a lot of my friends have been murdered for being transgender and there's no justice for them and that needs to stop so where we are now is that yeah we're, we're, we're we have a step forward but we it's, it's just the beginning. I agree with, um, I think a lot of us are on that page of it, it's time to look broader. The marriage equality, inclusive anti-discrimination laws are huge steps and huge achievements and the beginning of where we need to continue moving forward. And I think a lot of it is being in a place where we need to dig below the surface of what a big shiny law gives us. Um, and by that I mean we need to dig below. You can't legally discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Okay, let's talk about not only what does that look like, what does discrimination look like, but on the flip side, what would proactively creating safe spaces where people can be free to be themselves and not force parts of their identity into silence in order to feel like they have a right to be in this space? What, is, what does it look like to create those spaces in our workplaces, in our schools, in the justice system? And to recognize that no one can be reduced to just their sexual orientation or gender identity, but that these issues come up and intersect with each other. And how do we have those richer conversations within our community and also within our institutions? And so I think it's that peeling back that surface layer and looking deeper and recommitting to looking deeper and going further. And then we also do still need to make sure that people even know what rights they have on the books. People need to know that they can contact the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights and file a complaint that you have that right here in the state of Maryland. And we need to be taking advantage of it and using it. And so there's that education and continuing to work both within the community and the institutions that come into play with these laws that we, that we need to look at. You just said something I thought was really interesting, the idea of being reduced to your sexual orientation. I, I think that's an important insight. In other words, whatever the point of, of objectification is about who we are, to be reduced to only that, even though that is an element of your identity that should be celebrated. So to be reduced to being gay or transgender or of color, turning inside out the very thing that makes us special and not seeing the rest of who we are. Um, and I think it's insights like that that I'm really trying to reach for here that go beyond the very significant uh, legal protections that are so important as you were pointing out. I sort of feel that we're at a, a point that's analogous to uh, the middle of the 1960s with the civil rights movement where you see increasing legal protection uh, but uh, the journey is really just beginning and when we see of course what occurred here in Baltimore 
uh, just a few weeks ago, we see how long it can take for there to be any progress. And in some cases, it seems as if we're frozen in time on certain issues. And I'm hoping that that is not the case with respect uh, to justice and equal rights and equality uh, for this community. But I, I'd really be interested, since I sort of feel like you know, the legal protections reflect a growing sense of tolerance and maybe to some degree acceptance, which to me is inherently condescending actually. You know, I and my privilege accept you. Uh, but we're still a long way from a broad-based recognition of equality. The question I have is to the panel and hopefully to everybody in the audience, what would equality look like or feel like on a daily basis, right? Uh, what would it feel like to walk down the street where you are respected for who you are and where, where, where you're safe. Uh, it, it would feel a lot different from the way life feels now, I think, for most of the people in this room. But could we put some words uh, to that, Saida? So um, much of the work that I do right now is actually within um, the Department of Social Services. Um, we have had the opportunity to do um, a number of trainings specifically within uh, Baltimore City and then also across the state, um, sometimes in partnership with Equality Maryland. Uh, a, f a few weeks ago, we did a training um, with, I want to say, about 40 to 60 LGBTQ young people in care. Um, I didn't really think that many people would come. I gave it a mad corny title. It was something like, you know, standing up for your friends or something like that, you know, and the way that it started off was like, you know, me coming out and basically being like, hey, I'm gay. Anybody else want to talk about being, you know, LGBTQ? And, you know, the trauma that kind of rose to the surface was pretty intense, right? Um, so young people, you know, and everybody there was in care. So they were actively in care at this moment. There was no young person there that was not in foster care. Um, you know, so people were talking about not wanting to lose placements and going to church and saying that they were a sin. Um, because they felt that if they didn't do that, they would lose their homes. Um, and talking about um, actively avoiding other people that were like them because they were fearful that if their foster families found out, that they would lose their foster families or their foster families telling them that they were okay with their identities but then refusing to look them in their eye. So imagine for a moment, you know, losing your primary family of attachment and then after that, losing your foster family that is telling you, we love you as you are, but oh, okay, that's your identity, we don't want you anymore. And so to me, when I think about you know, a language of equality, actually what I think about is a language of love. I think about a language of joy. I think about a language that is not grounded in objection. I think about a language that is grounded in a history that really realizes the full beauty of who we are and that is really grounded in intersectionality. Like to this day, when I think back to the way that I was taught in school, you know, my family is Guyanese, all these things. I know there's queer Guyanese folks. I cannot tell you to this day who those queer Guyanese people are. I don't know who they were. I can tell you who some LGBTQ people were. I can even tell you who some black LGBTQ people were. But if you were to sit down and ask me to break down some West Indian LGBTQ folks, I can say Audre Lorde. That is it. I have my master's degree. 
That's it. That's all I can give you. But, you know, there's something to be said about this language of oppression that we've been raised in that makes us feel so unsafe, right? And, you know, I'm also sitting here on the stage thinking about Sandra Bland, um, you know, who, you know, is this woman that, you know, we're still trying to negotiate whether or not she committed suicide in a Texas jailhouse. So there's all of these pieces around us that, are really hard to negotiate around thinking about what does equality really look like for us. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that's really an answer, but that's, that's me. That's where I am right now. I like that question. What would equality look like? What would Atlantis look like? What, what does Shangri-La look like? Um, you know, I don't know if I can even fathom what equality looks like in a country where I know my life expectancy is lower than somebody else who might be of a different ethnicity. I know that people who live in certain zip codes have higher incidences of all kinds of diseases than people who live in other zip codes where uh, educational opportunity is determined by any number of things depending on who's around you. I don't know if I'd know what equality looks like, but I do know what the absence of some of these egregious offenses would look like. I think it would be a better world where people can go to the bathroom in whichever bathroom they want to go to and, have not, and not have it become uh, a major issue on foxnews.com, um, where kids can go to school where we don't have Leela Alcorns getting shouted out at the Golden Globe Awards. Um, you know, maybe I don't know what equality looks like, but I know that a CFO shouldn't be shamed on Gawker.com because he met with somebody who worked in gay adult films and now they... Uh, tried to pull gay shaming to the point that two editors had to quit, that shouldn't even be a thing, revealing someone's orientation, shaming them and completely ruining their life. That shouldn't even exist in 2015. So, I know I don't know what equality looks like, but I know what the status quo looks like. And I know that's not equality. So, from here, like uh, Giselle said before, we've taken a huge step forward. That's like Stepping off of the starting gate in a huge in a marathon, we still got a long way to go. Well, a, a utopia would be <laughs> what I want, but that's not realistic. So, what I would feel would be more like an equality state of being would be just that the government really pressures laws against people that um, discriminate against people, and you know. There's states in this country where you can uh, deny a job to a gay male or to a transgender woman. Um, so that needs to change. I just think the law needs to become stronger with people that discriminate against other people and get really penalized for what they're doing. And, you know, people shouldn't be turned down because of who they are, who, how they identify. If you present yourself in the correct way, if you present, if you present yourself in the correct way and you qualify for that job, why are you being denied that job? That should not exist. So I think that the law should just be stronger. And I think I should run for government. <laughs> I think a big indicator would be that we're past saying I don't care if you are X, Y, or Z and we're at the point of saying I value you because you are X, Y, or Z. Um, I think that too often the 
we're in this, I'm not homophobic, I have a gay friend. I don't care who you sleep with as long as this, that, or the other, as long as I don't have to see it, as long as you don't bring it to the workplace. That it would be an indicator of more progress when it's, uh, yeah, tell me about the love of your life the same way I want to hear about anything else that is important to you. And that we stop placing these restrictions, these qualifications, these requirements on how you still have to act to fit these broader norms in order to not be discriminated against, in order to be safe walking down the street. A trans person shouldn't have to fit certain notions of gender, of what your ideas of gender are, in order to be okay at that front desk as a receptionist. We need to get rid of those artificial and arbitrary requirements on what it means for us to be able to overlook this part of your identity and move towards truly embracing all parts of people's identities. Just following up on what everybody's saying here, I'd like to make two points. In my mind, and I'm not thinking of of a perfect world or Shangri-La or Atlantis or a utopia, but in terms of attitude, if people actually embrace the idea that it's just as natural, and I'm putting that word in quotes, and authentic to be gay as it is to be straight, that would be a big change. If people embrace the idea that it's just as natural and authentic to be transgender as it is to be cisgender, that would be a breakthrough in terms of equality. And I would also say, if people disposed of this bogus idea, you know, unfortunately born of uh, the Bible and the Quran, that there's something intrinsically immoral about same-sex sex between consenting adults, that would be a sea change as well. Uh, and I think what's difficult when you start thinking in those terms is that you start running out of words and you start running out of how to, to get at these attitudes, which leads to me to my next point, which is that I think a lot of these issues begin, obviously, right in the home, right? Uh, it's the rejection by family that is at the root of, of, the, of the tragedy of so many lives. Uh, if you are rejected by your family for any reason, you know, you're, you're a young person and you are kicked out of your home or you feel that you can no longer live there, uh, that sets in motion a whole chain of events for that person who is almost undoubtedly at that point undereducated, uh, unemployed, no money, going off in, into the unknown and uh, is incredibly vulnerable as a result. And so, you know, what it then makes me think of is vulnerability. How does society, this society or any society on this planet, deal with people who are vulnerable? And how do we begin labeling you as vulnerable? But it all does start in the home. So one thing I was hoping we could also share, and I know, Giselle, you've been very open about this in previous uh, panel discussions, about, you know, what was it like for, e for each of us here to grow up uh, what was it like in, in that home? Uh, what was it like in that neighborhood or at that school? You grew up in Harlem. And um, I know from our previous conversations, you had a lot of support from your mother. But there was a, a lot of um, harassment and bullying and adversity in the neighborhood uh, at school. And 
here's the significant point, which I think we all know. It doesn't end when you leave school. You know, it continues throughout your life. And could you share just a little bit of that with, with the people here? Or, any, yes, right. Well, yeah, I was bullied my whole life, just basically like, you know, most of, all of my friends. And, um, but I just found support with friends and people like me, and it made me strong, and it made me conquer all of those people. And one of the main reasons I was always bullied was because of uh, the Bible. I mean, I'll always say that because I'm not going to deny it. Um, a lot of people that were selling drugs in my neighborhood would just say, you're going to go to hell, we have the right to kick your ass and, and beat the shit out of you. We, you, you look like, you know, you, you're going to hell, God doesn't like you, they, and people used to attack me. And, but I used to actually confront every single situation growing up. I would be bullied by people, but I would confront these bullies. I would actually go up to them, not curse at them. I would speak to them in a very respectful way, saying, why do you disrespect me if I don't disrespect you? But I get the, and the, you know, they'll curse me out, but I would not leave. Because I was like, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go strong, because I'm not gonna let anybody s scare me or make me feel inferior to them when I know that they're not better than me because they're ignorant. I'm not gonna allow an ignorant person to put me down. So I would give them knowledge, and at the end of the day, I always won. They would always say, I'm so sorry. And I would confront people, thugs, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, white people, black people, anyone. I don't care who or what color, what creed, woman, male, whatever, religious people. I would debate you there on the street until I won. Now, was that a dangerous situation for me? Yes, it was. I was almost killed, like, what, seven times. But I got through that, and I actually shared knowledge with them and they actually felt bad for doing what they did now I don't suggest people do that but that's what made me the individual that I am so yes I was bullied but I confronted every situation so and you've also shared though that this goes on to this very day particularly when you go back and visit your mother yes. in the neighborhood in which you grew up uh, because people there knew you uh, you know, as, when you were a boy. Yes. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I still face that. So. Yeah. Yes. Any other thoughts from the, the panel on the issue of, yeah, of home and, and growing up? Uh, how would we change that? You know, how would we change the way, you know, people react to their own children? Uh, I guess these are some of the things I'm trying to get at because I don't have an answer <laughs> for them. So I'm asking, I'm asking that question. And I'm sort of, you know, setting up this dichotomy between the le legislation and r the reality uh, that people experience in their own homes or in their neighborhoods uh, or, or at school. Um, I mean, for transgender women in particular, there's a real dilemma. I mean, Janet Mock has said that passing is fundamental to survival. But if you do pass, or if you're a beautiful transgender woman, you have a, a whole other set of, of risk factors. Uh, if you're just sitting by yourself, minding your own business, having a drink at a bar, and you're hit on by a guy who uh, is not comfortable with, with his sexuality, and then he finds out that you're transgender, you're instantly uh, in a very dangerous situation. We know a, a couple of blocks from where your, your mother lives that Elon Nettles uh, was murdered 
in Harlem two years ago, right across the street from a police station with all sorts of video cameras around, with some of, out with some of her friends, and some guys began flirting with her, and when they found out she was transgender, a few minutes later she was dead. Well, that case has not been solved. Nobody's been, been brought to justice. So there are all sorts of issues that just make, you know, really the, the primary issue for so many transgender women, particularly women of color, is in fact survival. But to me, again, uh, you know, the root of these issues go back to, to the home and the degree to which uh, parents and, and siblings, you know, support their, their children. I do. Um, real quick, I want to I wanna pull apart some of the language that frequently gets used around especially transgender people and around gender identity. Because it's not that someone becomes their gender identity as soon as they start to publicly live in their authentic gender. A transgender woman is a woman regardless of when she publicly transitions. A transgender man is a man or a boy regardless of when he publicly transitions. A gender non-conforming person, regardless of their gender identity, whether it fits within these boxes of man, woman, or outside of them, that gender identity is valid for as long as they know it to be true, not as soon as someone publicly takes those steps. So I, I wanted to push back and pull out that language of when you were a boy or when you were a girl because that's just, it's not the right framing and it, it does somewhat of a disservice to legitimizing someone's gender identity. Right. What I meant was uh, when, in Giselle's case, when she was identifying publicly as a boy and that's how people think of her in, in that neighborhood. But you're absolutely right and there's so little understanding of gender identity. For example, when we were in, in Seattle, there was a transgender woman who, so far as we could see, had never made any attempt uh, to use hormones or, or to do anything that would look stereotypically feminine, uh, but had lived an out life as a transgender woman for decades and uh, was you know, very forthright about her identity and shared it with us. Uh, but gender identity seems to be a foreign concept for, for many people, which is, I think, one of your points, that um, we're simply identified by virtue of, you know, our biology, and, you know, whether we have a penis or a vagina. What could you see us doing to try to change that situation? Yes, ma'am. It comes with education with the families. It depends on where your mindset is. Um, and it comes with your community and how you educate the community. If you constantly don't put the information out there for the families to obtain, they're always going to hold fast to what their traditional beliefs are um, with dealing with anyone, whether it's their son or their daughter. I just think that in order to encamp about family, you have to educate the family. You have, to, if it's a heterosexual family, you have to go to the male because he is the head of the household, 
and you have to go to it and make, to me, make it become his idea to change the mindset of the home. That's just how it works in my home. If I go to my husband and I make him, you know, think, well, we should stop the boys from doing this because blah, 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 and then let it re resonate. And then he'll begin to say, yeah, you know, maybe we should stop the boys. But it starts with education and putting it out there and making it uh, obtainable for the families. If you don't make it obtainable for them and all they have is when I go to church, I hear my pastor say, I hear my bishop say, I hear my de the deacon say, I hear the evangelist say, I hear whatever. They're, that's what they're going to do, but it has to be something for the family to catch hold to, especially when you're dealing with a heterosexual family. Because if, they don't, if they've never encountered it, how are they going to deal with it? Um, so, like, one thing I want to, um, well, there, I guess there's two things I want to say, and I just want to add to, like, I think what Keith was um, saying. So, I think one thing that's really important, I think, as a, cis pers as a cisgender conforming person is um, oftentimes we don't really think how it is we control um, control our own presentations or sometimes um, even, I think, control the presentations of others, right? Um, so, for example, everyone, you know, I grew up in a family where, you know, my family, would, you know, I come from a very kind of traditional West Indian family, so my dad would say to me in this very, like, kind of thick Guyanese accent, you know, oh, you know, you're such a beautiful woman, you could find a man. And so, you know, like, there is definitely, like, this politics of passing that constantly happened, and it was incredibly invalidating of me, because I was like, it doesn't matter how I look. I'm beautiful. Yes, I'm fabulous. We can celebrate the, that till the day is long, but I can be beautiful and a bow tie and some suspenders and I would still be fierce as hell. Um, but the reality is, is that we have the, this politics, right, of passing and, get, and who gets to decide about what beautiful looks like, right? Um, that is a struggle for us, um, I think, to to, to figure out the words to, because to, even right now I'm kind of struggling to figure out the words to say. Um, it's a privilege thing, basically, I think that it breaks down to. Um, because oftentimes it feels really scary for us when someone fits outside of that binary and presents themselves and we know that there's a danger that's attached to that because we see that oftentimes. You know, if I'm walking down the street with a friend that is not is gender nonconforming in terms of their presentation, I know there's a fear. You know, I've, I've, I've experienced that fear with them of like, oh my goodness, when we walk down the street and there's someone that confronts us or yells at us, what is going to happen to us? And that is a really scary thing, but that doesn't take away from their beauty right? It only adds to their resiliency and their survival, but there's a fear that happens to us as well. And so I just wanted to say that. I'm not quite sure if that makes sense, but I just wanted to say that because I think there's something that happens to us when, um, when we, when we um, only maybe necessarily honor the beauty of those that conform mm -hmm. within that binary, right? And um, I know that's something that I've experienced that myself, and that's, I know that's something that I've contributed to because of my privilege as someone who conforms to my gender presentation. Um, the other thing that I wanted to add just in terms of that idea about home, and I think that was a really important question, right? Um, because of the way that I grew up in my home, you know, 
the most powerful moment I ever had, um, my family really struggled with my, my sexual orientation. And the most powerful moment I ever had with my father is when he admitted to me that when he was growing up in Guyana, they used to beat up gay men. It was a really interesting conversation because he was like, oh, there are no gay people in Guyana, and we beat up gay men. And I was like, well, <laughs> I was like, daddy, it was one or the other. Like, you can't... <laughs> I was like, either either the gay men existed, um, and you beat them up. Like, but but you can't have you can't have it both ways, right? Like, he was like, yes, I see your point, but they didn't exist, and we beat them up. Um, but it was this really powerful moment in terms of acknowledging for him the existence of um, why my identity was so abhorrent for him and why it was such a struggle for him to see me as I am, right? That, you know, I was just, I'm his first daughter, you know, um, the joke was in our family, I had him wrapped around my little finger, but the minute I came out, you know, my mother pretended to have cancer um, and I nearly lost everything. Like for 10 years, you know, I struggled. You know, I nearly lost my life because of what happened in my home. Um, and, we, and we see that a lot in terms of what you lose as privileges um, because of coming out in families um, with that. And I think there's a huge need for those conversations and that education that families struggle to have because there's such a fear around what will people say about me if my child is gay or if my child is transgender or if my child is gender nonconforming? What will other people think about me? How, how have I failed? As opposed to thinking about how can my love stretch, right? right? We never shift the narrative. Um, and that's a huge part of it, right? We never think about how is it we can transition the narrative in our work. And when I have done family therapy, I'm a clinician by trade, by trade. Um, we never think about how is it we can tra transition those conversations. And I often see that in terms of doing trainings with social workers. People are completely blocked in terms of thinking about having it because we want to just kind of convince people to kind of keep their mess in the closet. And it's not mess, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's who we are, but we want to convince people that it's shameful and that their narratives are somehow ugly because it's not something that we created or control. And I just wanted to touch on another point, that home is not the end of the end-all be-all of support. Um, you know, I'd like, I've uh, spoken in our, you know, previous panel discussions that we've had. Um, my mother and I fought like cats and dogs from the time I first came out to her at 13 um, all the way until um, I would leave home. Um, she said horrible things to me about being gay. Uh, fortunately, I never had to deal with anything like, you know, being thrown out or being put into foster care or anything like that. But when I was 13 and I didn't get anyone, I wasn't hearing anything supportive, I was right there online. And this was 1991, so that was called hooking the phone jack up to the back of the computer and dialing numbers until one works. Um, like, I could be myself on the bulletin board systems at night after school. Um, and there I was hearing words of support. What I tell people in my music now when I perform, you know, if I hear kids telling me about what their parents said or what the church said and things like that, I try to shift the focus to them and be like, no, 
you're beautiful, you're fantastic, forget what they said, you can accomplish this, you can accomplish that, forget what your mother said, your mother's ignorant, go to, go to this group on Facebook, go to this organization, call this number, go to this website, forget, yeah, I don't care what your church said, don't, you don't have to listen to them no more, call these people, call those people, because it's not so much that home has to be supportive, but there has to be support there. And, you know, wherever it has to come from, it should come from a positive place, not from the sex trade, not from a gang or something like that. It should come from a positive place, from positive people, and, you know, in case home isn't a supportive place for people. Something that you said struck me, you know, about the whole issue of shaming and humiliation, right? That that's maybe a component of what puts people at risk. And it made me think of a, a comment that one of the participants in uh, The Human Agenda, Ian Harvey uh, made, he's a stand-up comedian, trans man, he's on Transparent now. He made the point that he felt that virtually all spontaneous attacks on gay men were actually gender-based. So if you think about it, if you're a gay man walking down the street how about, by yourself, how does anybody know you're a gay man? And one of these triggers seems to be... You haven't seen some of my t-shirts. Uh, okay, well, there you go. Well, there are ways. But um, there, there seems to be this trigger that, that has to do with a, a biological male presenting in a way that is stereotypically viewed as feminine or a biological male who identifies as a woman or this whole shaming element uh, that if you, for example, in the case of Elon Nettles, which I mentioned, those guys were flirting with her, right, until they discovered she was transgender, and then some, it, it immediately flipped into this life and death uh, situation. Uh, and then you were seeming to, to suggest that there's a kind of discomfort, uh, even within the family, you know, if one of your children presents in, in, in a certain way. Could, any thoughts on this? Because it, it, it's almost impossible, I think for me at least, to follow that thought past a certain point, and it sort of disappears into the black hole of call it what you will, human nature. Like, why is there this trigger of hostility uh, with people who present in a certain way, and, and why is it that it's possible to shame people, you know, for showing publicly an attraction that then leads to someone's, you know, tragic death? What's going on there, I guess, is what I'm, I'm asking. Well, since I've experienced that, I think it just threatens those males, and it makes them question their sexuality, but it shouldn't because you're attracted to a female when it comes to a transgender woman, when a straight male is attracted to a transgender woman, they're, they're viewing a female figure, a woman. So why should you question your sexuality? It's okay that you're not into that, but you shouldn't feel bad about it because she's presenting herself as a female. She's not presenting herself as a male um, uh, figure. So I mean, it has to do with internal issues about feeling like, oh my God, I'm gay, you know? Because I'm attracted to this woman, but she's a transsexual, or she's a transgender woman, or she's gender nonconforming, that might, you know? So I think that's one of the issues, you know? And then society, and you're in front of your friends, and then your friends say, oh, that's, that's a man, which what, that's what they use, that's what they say. And hearing that's a man is going to be like, wait a minute, I'm going to have to show off. I'm going to have to act. I'm going to have to be a man about this. And I'm going to have to either beat the person up or 
show that I'm a macho for being called this way. These have been my experiences. And, but how could you be a male? I mean, how could you feel so macho by like, fighting somebody who is not capable of fighting you back or is not as strong as you? I never got that. Well, I, I, I want to hear some other people's opinions because that's mine. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think it, what it speaks to and really highlights is how homophobia and transphobia are wrapped up in sexism. And you can't talk about ideas of sexual orientation and the appropriate sexual orientation or gender identity and expression and the appropriate gender identity and expression without saying flat out that it's because what is masculine and associated with men and males is held as better than, more valuable than femininity, females, women. And that to be attracted to a man as a man, you're acting like a woman. And that you can't separate these ideas of gender and sexual orientation as cleanly because the systems and the parts of our society that are there to hold up one idea is what functions to oppress and hold down others. And it's not just gender and sexual orientation. It's all bound up in notions of race, of class, of physical ability, of general appearance. Just all of these operate together. And as you start violating this norm of what's held as the most valuable idea, that's when you're opening yourself up to, and not you're opening yourself up. That is, it is those traits taken together that activate that flip that you were talking about. So I think it really highlights how these notions are all wrapped up in each other. There also seems to me, though, to be a sense in these situations without, obviously, the person who's about to commit an act of violence consciously thinking this way, but that they feel safe attacking that other person, that there's a kind of permission to do it, and that there aren't going to be consequences for them. And I think that that's a very significant factor. The other thing which I think you're pointing out is, is this confusion between gender identity and, and sexuality, which seems to be operating in all of the nonsense about the bathroom, right? I mean, I don't know of a single incident that's ever been documented of a transgender woman harassing women in a bathroom. Uh, but I was just reading the other day that there are 17 states and something like 200 cities with bathroom laws now, and more and more being propagated all the time around this bizarre idea that, you know, you have to go to an assigned bathroom or something terrible is going to happen. And so again, these are, are very murky issues to try to navigate through because they get into, I think, thoughts and feelings that people can barely even express. But these are the kinds of things that, to me, make life so dangerous for certain people. And yet what's striking is that some of these reactions are instantaneous. I mean, it's amazing to me that there is a human being who would want instantly to kill another human being that they have never even laid eyes on before, right? But in that moment, they're ready to do that. And I know you've experienced that, and many other people have. And I guess this is the kind of thing that is so troubling to me. I guess for me, it doesn't necessarily feel so murky. I think it's just, it feels like, who is it? Do we feel like we, we are mandated to have the right to kill? 
Um, you know, so oftentimes when I do trainings, I'll tell the story of Zakia Gunn. Um, you know, are, are folks familiar with Zakia Gunn? For the most? So Zakia Gunn was a young black lesbian with um, a more, um, what we would call a more masculine gender presentation. Um, she would wear baggy jeans, um, you know, loose t-shirts. She, um, she was 15 years old. Uh, she lived in New Jersey. She would travel to New York City because there wasn't really anything to do for, you know, young LGBTQ people of color in her community. Um, she was at the bus stop uh, at 2 a.m. when a um, driver, a, a man pulled up to her and a friend and asked for her number. She told the man that, um, hey, you know, I'm a lesbian, not interested. And he drove away, he came back, and he stabbed her to death. Um, she bled to death in her friend's arms. Typically, the response when I, when I tell this story um, and I do this training is, you know, people are sad, and then people will say, well, she shouldn't have told him that she was a lesbian. Why did she say that? You know, and, you know, these are people with hearts, right? Like, you know, we have hearts. These are people that love. They have kids. These are not people that, you know, don't care. You know, these aren't, they aren't lacking compassion. But on some level, we are constantly thinking about what is it we can do to shield ourselves from pain? What is it we can do um, to, to protect ourselves? And on some level, we think that we don't, we literally cannot be free, right? We literally do not have the right to be equal, right? Um, and so when we talk about these, these bathroom bills, when we talk about all of these different intersections, right, what we're literally talking about is who is it among us do not have the right to be human beings? Um, and, and so for me, as you know, um, the best example I can give is um, I, I was reading an article about Reckia Boyd and um, when they uh, sent literally back in a Ziploc bag to her family, um, they had cut off the bloody weave and they put it in a little Ziploc bag and they mailed it to her family as part of her belongings. And I was like, I was weeping in the car as I was driving home and like, I was like, wow. You know, this is someone that they literally considered less than human, and I was wondering about the person who was doing this. Like, who, who, who does that? Who, who, like, has this person has a family at home, yet they didn't even think that they're sending this to yet another family who had lost their own child. And yet the person who killed Islan Nettles, Elon, sorry, Elon Nettles, they probably had family. They probably had someone who may have looked just like an Elon at home, but they didn't think about that because to them all that mattered was that this person had confronted some part of their identity and no longer had a right to live. And so I think this is, these are the pieces of the wounds that we are confronting in, the, in our identities. Well, we have a few more minutes, and yeah, I was just going to invite... Um everybody in the audience to join in at this point. Uh, um, listening to, uh, especially go back to family, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, which, you know, that'll say a whole lot to begin with. Um, and over the hill from Jerry Falwell. So, um, but from a very non-religious family. And so even as a, as a kid, knowing as a gay male, that I was never going to say anything just because of the jokes that were told, not necessarily being malicious. They, said, they didn't think it was malicious. 
and having gay men that I knew in town as, you know, the ones that stood out and the transgender that stood out and, uh, and realizing I'm not like them because I don't look like them, I don't act like them, so I must not be. And as I, as I got older with my family, I didn't come out till I'm in my 30s. Finally tell them and they went, doesn't the Bible say? And I'm like, you people don't even go to church. I go to church every Sunday. You don't go to church. <laughs> and so um, having the conversation, but what I've noticed as my father and my stepmother, and I've had two stepmothers, have gotten older, it's, it's, real, it's changing. It's real, and their perception has changed. When my partner passed away, my father said at the funeral, he was the best son-in-law I ever had. That's a change. And it's a fundamental change. Now, is my father going to be uh, an advocate? Is he going to stand out at gay pride? No, probably not. But at least he has moved in the way he perceived, and therefore that affects how he sees his nephews, his great-grandchildren. And so if someone else comes out, it becomes not as much of a big deal. But it, for me, it was like it was a process. And I think shame may be applied to us as, as transgender or as gay or lesbian persons, but I think a part of the shame comes in our family too. They're afraid to admit that we've come from them. And then there's a blame placed on them for having created us. And I, and I think they don't want to say that, but I think it's something they feel and we have to acknowledge. That it's not shameful for me to come from you. Actually, it's a very good thing that I've come from you. I recognize my roots are wonderful. And I've had wonderful people in my family. So don't see it as a shameful thing. Just say it's like I'm just a little different from my brothers and sisters. Two things that you just, oh, two things that you just said, and uh, also which build on what you had uh, brought up before, Saida, like that, um, you know, don't tell them that you're lesbian right before the person gets stabbed right at two in the morning, and that becomes the justifiable provocation. A lot of what parents are, what homophobic parents are trying to do is to drill that into their child's head, like don't let them know that you're gay as a mode of protection. Some in uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's a good intention. They're trying to, you know, protect the child, but you know, it comes could come off in a horrible way. And also, um, like you said about your dad, um, being pro-gay against his own will a little bit. The best son-in-law I ever had. I wrote an article for Quartz. Um, I write for the global business news site Quartz, um, and uh, I wrote an article about uh, the head of Marriott Hotels, Bill Marriott. This guy is named for the same person Mitt Romney is named for. He's extremely Mormon, yet Marriott Hotels in Chicago had Mr. Leather competition one year, and he's been um, a quiet advocate uh, of LGBT rights for over a quarter century. Is anybody going to call him an ally? Is he ever going to be there at Pride? No, but he's been secretly, quietly passing policy after policy at his company, supporting LGBT people for decades. Do we call that an ally, or do we not, you know? Same type of thing. Uh, on the road, the road to Brown, now we're going to 
the reason why I bring that up is because apparently uh, Charles Houston was is a lawyer who's now deceased, and he was the architect of the whole civil rights movement. And you couldn't help but put yourself in the time frame where you were born. So I'm saying, I'm watching this, I'm going, geez, I thought all this started in the 60s when, in fact, Charles Houston's life, life's work started in the early part of the 60s. So for at least 30 years, they used strategies to get us to the point where the Brown versus Board of Education case came around in 54. I graduated from high school in 64. So I'm going, geez, I was there at that time. Oh, this is what was going on in that background. So you made a comment about the census in 60. Look how far, look how long yeah. it's taken. Maybe no, it's been since the ni since 1900. It's been a long time just to get the people where we are right now. And we're still saying, in light of what you just said, as a, for example, as a black mother to my black son, be, be careful when you're going down the street. He's 50 years old. Be careful, don't go too fast. Because you just, you know, you know, don't do that because the police might catch you. You know, and so I'm saying it takes a long time. I don't like it. You know, I'm, here, I'm so proud of you all for being here. I, my girlfriend Carrie is the head of the Department of Maryland. And when she finally told me she was gay, you know, and I had to struggle with a lot of things. what I think is, is great about what we're doing here because you could say something and you might think, you know, it, it's not going to make a difference, but it might make a slight difference in somebody's thoughts or feelings in this room and it could lead to amazing change. I mean, what I was saying was since, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement in the 60s where, where we had some breakthroughs in, in terms of legislation and now 50 years later, some things still seem to be frozen in time, but I mean, we could go back centuries. Yeah, sure. But, but from the beginning of time, I mean, people have been struggling for, for dignity, and so we could go all the way back. That's why I find it so humorous when people look back and, and say, well, marriage has always been between a man and a woman. Yeah, women have been property for thousands of years. I mean, don't look to history for equality. That's where you're going to find bigotry, ignorance, and discrimination. Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I want to say that this has been inspiring, but uh, for 50 years, something like this has been going on. And when it comes to transgender people, uh, I graduated in 65. I'm 69 years old. And uh, I know that on the streets and friends of mine were uh, transgender. It was very difficult for them. 
they would have to travel with uh, straight looking gay men when they wanted to go out places or do things because they were very much afraid on the streets of downtown Baltimore or in uh, East Baltimore uh, because in black communities and in brown communities, this is a no-no for you to even be gay as far as 50 years ago. And transgender people could be attacked by anybody at any time. And if they call the police, they were subject to being locked up, not the individual that was attacking them. And the thing about it is now, I've watched after becoming an educator 15 years later that in the school systems, you have students who will drift towards you uh, and you, you're trying to figure out why is my classroom so filled with these kids coming in here. And if you notice, they're all talking freely about their families, their backgrounds, and then they'll get into their sexuality. And this is where education, and like this lady said, at home, it has to start also at home. But we have to have resources for people to be able to go to, for mothers to be able to go to, for fathers to be able to go to. We need projects and programs and things of this nature so that it will be open for people who, if you don't have, you don't know whether you have a gay son or daughter. You still have a family, and you all, we all have to be educated. This is the respect that we give each other, and we have to let our children know this. And the reason why a lot of kids are attacking, it's not only uh, you or it's not only the transgender person. They are afraid of themselves. They have a fear. They're hurt a lot of other economical things that are happening in the system. And when they see this, then they'll say, well, they may have certain advantages that I don't have, or they're getting away with something that I'm not getting away with. And when you look at them, they attack, they'll say things. This is to make them feel bigger or make them feel better. But it's not going to make them feel better, because in within themselves, after they've committed this crime, or attack someone who's gay or transgender, they feel bad about it, but it's because they're with a group or because it makes them just feel big because it says, now I can look at myself in the mirror and like myself, but they do not like themselves. And this is the thing about it. A lot of young people, reason why we have a lot of this hatred against homosexuals, transgender people, is because they do not love themselves, okay? And when you don't love yourself, you don't feel that you have a future and there's something going on at home, it's much deeper than just hating that person. It's something within them. So we have to really look at this on a large scale. And like I said, at 69 years old, we have come a long, long way, 50 years. So. If you can continue these programs and put them in the school system, have resources for parents, have resources out there, the rap artists, the musicians, the artists, you need to just keep pushing this agenda. Because before it's all over with, it'll be okay. No, you need the microphone because we're taping this. So can you come over here? All right. 
my name is Coley Tingela. I teach a, what I would go call the Positive Social Change Theater Program within Baltimore City Public Schools. And I use theater and performance, positive hip-hop, spoken word, dance, music, and theater, and also film to help guide folk. Not only young people, but I'm now working with adults as well, disenfranchised community, like coming out of incarceration, um, individuals dealing with the disease of addiction. But I've suddenly had, within the school I teach, a great many um, gay and lesbian students coming to me, joining my theater club, and wanting to address their concerns through the style of theater and film that I teach and develop. And I'm just wanting to educate my 52-year-old heterosexual self on how to healthily navigate them sharing honestly and speaking their truth to power to enlighten and educate. So I have two questions. One is, do you believe that using art as a tool to educate, as in edutainment, um, whether theatrically or through film, can um, debunk the myths and stereotypes facing gay, lesbian, and transgendered people. Secondly, another concern that I had that was broached by several of my, most of my students are African-American, and I have several um, young ladies who are gay and present very masculinely. Um, their concern has been a racial and economic dynamic that we brought up in my class saying that rich, white, gay folk don't have the same problems as they're struggling in um, the inner city African-American gay folk. And they've made me aware of watching certain things and dynamics that made me aware of it. I think I'm a student dealing with white supremacy and everything else, and I deal with those things within um, my program. And so it was brought up. And I do broach the subject um, when the African-American community, not only dealing with um, issues of folks of different sexuality, but dealing with misogyny and sexism as a whole within the black community has to be broached as well. As you were saying, sir, a lot of it's triggered by sexist ideology that affects folk who happen to be gay. So those two things, how can I help make the world better and help folks achieve understanding? And secondly, is there a genuine schism and a reality, di reality difference between black folk who are economically disenfranchised, who are gay and lesbian, as opposed to white folk who might be affluent or just their experience of being gay is different if they're white. Number one, thank, thank you for all the work that you're doing. That's fantastic. Art and education coming together. It was education that got me to start doing hip hop. I started rhyming when I was learning in, um, in yeshiva in Jerusalem as a way to learn um, to memorize scripture better. Um, Hip-hop, for me, started off as an educational tool and then would grow out from there. I think that that's a fantastic thing that you're doing, and I think that music, art, that is one of the best modes of expression, especially for somebody who's dealing with oppression, dealing with adversity, dealing with, be, dealing with misogyny, sexism, white supremacy, on top of homophobia, trans issues, totally. Um, that being said... Um, I don't even know where I could even begin to scratch the surface of your second question. Is it different for struggling LGBT people of color than it is for white affluent LGBT people? Do you want to take this? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, 
Um, so, yes, 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 and yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, so the, everybody's experience is different, right? But then when you look at the intersections of income and class um, and privilege, I mean, how could it not be, right? Um, and so those are issues that I think especially... Um, as we look at marriage equality, there's been a lot of fears, especially when marriage equality was announced. There was a lot of fears in the LGBTQ community, especially among people of color, undocumented folks, immigrants, um, about what that would mean in terms of the LGBTQ movement. Um, you know, I definitely saw a lot of articles um, about like, well, the LGBTQ movement is over. We're done. We're good, right? Um, and we were kind of looking like, uh, well, given that 40% of all homeless youth identify as LGBTQ and family rejection is still the greatest predictor of um, LGBTQ youth involvement in the criminal justice system, we're going to say, no, it's not. Um, so those are really significant realities. What I would say is that the work that you're doing, um, I'm also a poet, um, I would say that the work that you're doing is really crucial, right? Because we know that art and actually being able to document your own narrative is really huge, especially when we're looking at the histories of LGBTQ youth, because they need to be able to document their own narratives, especially when their narratives have been so controlled and invisibilized by other people. Um, I would really love to talk to you all Offline and be happy to speak with you about providing a training um, about your work. I would also really recommend looking at the work of Denez Smith, Insert Boy. Um, he is a young black gay man who is... Um, one, he just won the Lambda Literary Award for his work. Also, he is a, um, like, I think a two, three, or four-time slam, national slam champion winner. Um, and there's, like, 500 other queer, pe queer and trans people of color, queer and trans poets of color that I could tell you about. Um, yeah, so I'd just be happy to talk to you offline about that and about other trainings. Sorry, and just to, to um, touch on like the specifics of you know of your students. Anybody who uh, just a word about like you know the music industry and um, you know what it what it means to be coming with a divergent message. If you as long as you're putting yourself out there and as long as you're putting your sound out there and as long as you're true to what you think and believe, that's going to resonate with some audience. Look at YouTube; even the most ridiculous tracks get a hundred thousand views. So, um, you know, if you're putting your message out there and you're true to yourself, it's going to resonate with someone. And you don't know it, who that person is, but I would suggest that they not water that down and not try to make themselves more palatable to Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so at Walmart and to, keep stay, and to keep staying true to what they know. Um, I have a couple of, of thoughts. First, to your uh, second question, uh, there are all sorts of forms of privilege, right? I mean, you could have no money, but if you're white and male, you have those two assets in, in society. And I think privilege and advantages obviously change experience. Um, one of the, the people in the, my book, Elegance Bratton, who happens to be African-American and uh, uh, did a, a film that should be coming out soon on homeless LGBTQ youth, was making precisely your point that the experience for uh, people of color is radically different than for uh, white people within the community. And from his point of view, this has not been very much discussed or understood. 
And so we, we need to have that discussion. Uh, first point about art, and, and you can define lots of different purposes to art. One that I like, and I didn't come up with this myself, goes back to other uh, artists like Brock and Andre Gide, is that the purpose of art is to disturb. And I, I sort of interpret that literally, like moving somebody physically from one place to another place. Uh, but creating change that's not necessarily rational, at least at, at first. You have an artistic experience, and it moves you, or it shakes you up, or it changes you. And I, I think that's why it is so important, because we can reach those places uh, that I've been sort of groping to talk about here that go beyond what you can rationalize about what you're feeling or what you know. Uh, and that's how art uh, can, can be activist and can make change. Uh, something that's powerful, sometimes that you don't rationally understand, uh, can be more meaningful than what you immediately can parse you know, into words and explain. So that would be my response. Anyone else? Well, going to the art issue, I think art is an amazing tool. It is what motivates people to start thinking. I think knowledge is power, too. A lot of people that are racist don't even know someone that's of that other color, personally. They're probably not even allowed to be around those people. If these people hear your personal stories and hear how everyone feels and speaks, not on the internet, because the internet is not human. It's just a computer. So if you get to show, showcase your art, just like Orange is the New Black is a form of art. Laverne Cox has made this whole movement with a transgender, uh, the whole transgender issue before Caitlyn Jenner. So Laverne Cox is really the one that has pushed this whole movement before Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner is just getting more exposure because of, you know, other reasons. But these are the most powerful forms to move people. So I'm happy that you're doing that. I would, um, I, I like that you brought up having these discussions and that people are acknowledging that these discussions aren't being had. I'm, I'm speaking to, more to your second point. I agree art. I agree on all of the levels of art also. Um, but I, I also think it's incredibly important that as we have these conversations that LGBT people who don't share experiences don't pretend to speak for other people. My role as a white person is not to say, here is what I'm hearing and thinking that people of color need and how those experiences are different. My role is to do everything that I can to elevate people who can speak for themselves to create those spaces where those conversations can be had, and yes, to challenge other people who share the same privilege along these lines, to challenge other white LGBT people and activists to create those spaces, to elevate those voices, not to say, here's what I think we need to work on to address these issues. And that being allies to each other across these lines of difference needs to come from that intention across the board, but it is a responsibility we need to have those conversations, and we need to have them in a real, authentic, dig deep below the surface way. Not just stop at saying, yes, there are different issues, but saying what kinds of issues and what is all of our role in either consciously perpetuating or doing away with 
these differences and oppressions within the broader LGBT community. Well, we're just about at the end of our time here, so I was wondering if anybody has a, a concluding thought that they'd like to share. Great. Um, I would like you to know, well, let's see, I, I was a commissioner with the Criminal Justice Compensation Bureau, and essentially all it does is hear claims filed by innocent victims of crime. So I'd like you all to know that without diminishing anything you said, that there's so many claims being filed by people who just have no to suspect why somebody hurt them and hurt them bad. And so he, there are many people who live among us and all over the place. There is, there don't, there's nothing rational about it. I would most often say, you didn't know this person and you didn't do anything to cause this? No. And I mean, the worst thing in the world happened to them uh, and they were innocent of these crimes. And it's worse when you add the element of real hate to it. So I just want you to know that as bad as you are experiencing people who hate because you are a certain way, you know, that the comfort that you should feel is that there are crazy people everywhere. <laughs> you know what? There's a crazy people out there. And you need to always remember that because that, you know, as you go forth, it ain't always because but I'm not dimension. You know how I hate people. And just one last point. Just I would I would be remiss as a hip hop artist if I didn't go here. Saturday night, 9 p.m. Wild Love Reverb, 2112 North Charles Street. It's a private club. Information Facebook slash Wild Love Music. Saturday night, 9 p.m. Be there. LGBT hip hop. Right. Well, thanks, Wild Love. And on on that note, that upbeat note, uh, I'd just really like to thank everybody for spending this time. I think it was a great conversation. Let's keep it going. Have a great night. <laughs>